I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So, who would like to start? Mr. Barnes, why does Sam aggravate you? 15 seconds to drop! So what's our plan? Great. Superheroes cannot be allowed to exist. I have no intention to leave my work unfinished. upside down right now where do we start look i have a plan oh yeah what is it is you ready here we go again huh we've been grinding hard on the job can't take that from us With us, we have Alastair Stewart of Escape Artists Incorporated. Hello. Greg Downing of Through the Window. Hello. And from our Discord, Austin Wilden, a.k.a. WC Wit. Hey. Now, for the purposes of this show, I am personally going to abbreviate the lengthy mouthful of the title to simply Falcon. It is appropriate as a transitional piece whereby Sam Wilson goes from this moniker that he adapted after meeting Steve Rogers and becoming an Avenger to becoming Captain America, successor to his legendary friend. And then to go on to the fourth film in that trilogy that now in the works under the charge of show creator Malcolm Spellman. This in no way diminishes the input of James Buchanan Barnes, the Winter Soldier, or White Wolf, who plays an absolutely essential support role whilst going through some long-needed rehabilitation on screen. Now, we have something like five and a half hours of events to discuss, and we have under two hours to accomplish that. I'm going to keep us on point and launch us from character to character in a nimble fashion. And through these, we can explore theme and invoke details. Now, this show tackles some weighty concepts, and some of them are handled better than others. So we will hopefully be able to explore the weaknesses and the reasons as to why as we outline the strengths. So let's jump in hard and heavy with a focus on our main guy, Sam Wilson. So what obstacles does he have to overcome? What ways does he have to change and by contrast become more himself throughout the six episodes? One of the things that Falcon, the show Falcon, does in a way that almost none of the other MCU outings have done besides Black Panther is talk about the politics of being black. And that's hugely front and center, like almost from the word go right there in the first episode. And is, I guess, part of the reason why he is reluctant to take up the shield at all to begin with. Like he does it, takes him a little bit while to actually express that to Bucky and to other people, but that's primarily what's going on there right at the beginning. He's been given the shield. He doesn't necessarily feel worthy for the reasons that Cap felt he did, and 
So therefore, his initial instinct is to, uh, as some might say, refuse the call mm. and pass the shield on, saying that this was his this was his mantle. I can't possibly live up to that. I'm just going to continue doing what I do best, which is him, but slower, as he mentioned <laughs> in the actual movie, The Winter Soldier. <laughs> The irony, I think, with the, well, I say irony, um, the narrative twist <laughs> of um, the uh, the traditional way Sam sees himself as being Steve but slower is that the element of becoming his own version of Captain America involves speed and mobility and a nimbleness that uh, Steve did not have because he didn't have wings. The thing about talking about Falcon and the Winter Soldier is that it ends up, because it's a continuation of Cap's story, even though Cap is no longer here, then that means that we have to see how not only Bucky, but like a lot of the other characters in there, good and bad, fit into that, or fit or do not fit into that narrative. Sam does not have the same surety of purpose as Steve always seemed to manage to have. He struggled with it over the course of three of his own movies and some of the rest of the tangential stuff, but he always managed to, in the end, stay true to what he believed was right, and Sam doesn't necessarily know what's right at this point. That's a part of his journey. Side note, we're already failing to focus on this as a show called Falcon and to look at Sam as Sam. You called Steve Cap. Cap is now Sam. Mm. It's, it's so easy to just fall into these traps. When we say Falcon, we mean the show. When we say Sam, we mean Sam. When we say Steve, that refers to Steve Rogers. That needs to be how we proceed forwards. We are now in a legacy period of Marvel, wherein the role passes forwards. And this is the first huge emblematic moment of passing the torch, passing the shield. It may help to think of the term Captain America as the ship of Theseus. Yeah. (laughs) How much of it can you take away and give to someone else before it is no longer Captain America? Or Ant-Man. Ant-Man's been doing this for a while, actually. It did this in an almost stealthy way. Scott effectively takes over from Hank... As we meet him, Mm -hmm. effectively what we said back in 2015 was this is Team (laughs) Ant-Man. And what we have here is Team Cap supporting Sam as he steps up to take the shield. Yeah, Captain America is a family, not just a a person. Bingo. And you already kind of worked that family into your own psychological makeup. I did. Absent of joy, because there isn't that much to be found in the Captain America mythos. It's it's there, it just needs a little bit of... um... (laughs) Further examination. <laughs> I said Peter Parker might work or maybe Kamala Khan, but obviously they are... Uh, they're not really part of the... Yeah, the, they're the ancillary cap. to this particular mythos. right? And MCU Carol was never Miss Marvel, so we don't know what the origin of that name's going to be yet. Mm, exactly. Very true. Right, um, we're going to have to invoke Isaiah here because what you said there, Greg, about um, the, the, the reasons of, of uh, uh, Sam's uncertainty plays in very heavily in Isaiah's very dark 
very upsetting, remarkably courageous way of drawing a line in the sand, being unflinching and being critical of America's history straight out the gate, more so, I would say, than even Black Panther in terms of what happened to Isaiah. Well, because that criticism comes from an internal place, whereas Wakanda's criticism comes from without. Hmm. They are critical of the colonizer nations, but it comes from a place of they have been able to maintain their agency even when a lot of other places around the globe, black and non-black, were not able to. The argument with Wakanda is Wakanda should have been allowed to exist, whereas Isaiah is all about reflecting on what did happen through this superhero lens. Mm. Similarly, Killmonger's perspective is that Wakanda took no part when it could have been assisting, supporting, persecuted black people all over the globe throughout history. And they didn't, which makes him furious. So the arc of that film is making T'Challa more sharply aware of this imbalance, informing upon his decision as to where to take Wakanda next. Isaiah was right at ground zero among those persecuted, abused and used peoples. Uh, Alistair, how uh, much can you tell us about Truth, the uh, series that um, Isaiah hailed from, to contextualise uh, this, or, p- or potentially the history behind the Tuskegee Airmen or various... A, a fair amount. Um, okay. Truth is arguably the finest work uh, of Kyle Baker, who is in turn a, a very strong case for one of the greatest comic creators of the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. Um, as you pointed out, uh, it takes as its basis the idea of the Tuskegee Airmen, the illegal and barbaric experimentation carried out on POC servicemen because you wouldn't want to risk a white boy. They and, didn't qualify as people. Yeah, of course. Uh, and the way that, that the, the series explores it is really interesting in that it actually maps far more specifically onto Steve's time period. Steve and Isaiah actually cross over very briefly. Uh, Isaiah is the first active Captain America in the comics and Steve is I think only aware of him at a much later date what they've done with the series is really interesting in that what they've taken that refusal of agency and refusal of identity which also speaks I think to Sam I'd argue very vociferously that Sam is one of the moral compasses of the Marvel Universe Mm. he knows exactly what's right and wrong the issue he has in this show has nothing to do with that and everything to do with he doesn't know where he's allowed to stand he doesn't know he doesn't know how much space he's allowed to take up and for very different reasons that's something i identify with very viscerally but the idea that the the idea that what they've taken with isaiah is moved him in many ways further away from sam and closer to bucky where he's an asset he's a deniable covert operations asset Mm -hmm. and it's never said out loud but it's implied very heavily that isaiah and perhaps one or two other people around him were the u.s's attempt to answer the winter soldier Mm And not only did not only did none of them work, but they were punished for something they couldn't do, and their lives were made even harder. And I mean, the, the show has justifiably, I think, taken a lot of criticism for a lot of its explorations of racial politics. It's also done a lot of it very well, but very little for me works better than just the very clear-eyed and very historically contextualized cruelty of taking this man who had no choice in what he did, did an impossible job as well as he possibly could, and was then punished even more for it. And I mean, you could, 
open Western history at any page and find an Isaiah. And I, I think that and the fact that he's played by Carl Lumley, who somehow manages to turn in career best work in a career full of career best work, yeah. really speaks to that. The way Isaiah's story plays out in Falcon and Winter Soldier, since you've read the founding document here, is the thing that goes wrong with Isaiah in the show the same as what happens is in the graphic novel? If I remember correctly, and it has been a while since I have read it, no. Uh, also, in the comics, Isaiah has long-term um, injuries and consequences of the experimentation. He's uh, He is, for a while, at least far closer to being an invalid mm. than we see him in the show. Interestingly as well, his, his nephew, the kid who's looking after him, uh, has inherited the traits. Um, he is, if I remember correctly, he ends up being Patriot, one yeah. of the young Avengers. Mm. So what's, the way that the show interacts there, it does a really interesting thing where you have Sam walk into this potential familial legacy heroism, which he's not quite allowed to figure out yet. And I wonder whether that's going to be something which we'll see in the later films. A couple of the boys get captured on a mission. I heard the brass talking about blowing the POW camp to hell to hide the evidence. But those are my men, my brothers, not evidence. So I bust out of the facility one night and I brought them boys back. Not that it made a damn bit of difference. It wasn't long before it was only me left. And what did I get for saving their lives? They put my ass in jail for 30 years. Something with Sam that the theme of community that I thought was one of the biggest things permeating Falcon as a show. Mm. Sam Wilson personal side of his story, like the last thing he does before he's comfortable enough to start being Captain America is reach out to his community to get some help. Yeah. It's the support and almost permission of that community that he comes from to say yes, it is okay for you to go and do this if you choose to do that. And there's actually yeah. a really interesting ancillary point in, in how the show is designed that speaks to that, which is the theme tune, which is called Louisiana Hero. Mm. I was about to bring that up. And, and I, I love that that you have the guitars of the church organ in there, and you get 30 seconds in and you go, yes, this is no longer the story of a very, very good white man. You know, it's it's absolutely the the, the the theme tune to to a couple of country boys punching bad people in the face, <laughs> and and the gear shift in that and the with the very witty way a lot of the music is designed is one of my favorite things about the show. Yeah, Henry Jackman did a smashing job of not only re-evoking the old themes of uh, Winter Soldier and Civil War in particular, uh, but moving things forwards and, and embracing uh, Sam in particular. The I saw a really fantastic chain of tweets from a Louisiana resident who was like, they nailed this community, and uh, they expressed that they were irked by previous depictions of Louisiana, which uh, tend to make it seem much more of a, a negative place or just riddled with crime and prostitution. And th there was a sort of a, a sense of being able to, to, to go to Louisiana and experience it in a way that feels like how locals feel 
there. Mm. Which is important when you're portraying... As opposed to tourists. Yeah, yeah, it's important when you're portraying a specific location that it it doesn't necessarily have to be a precise one-to-one recreation. It could be argued that that can never happen anyway because everybody's experience of a place is different. But the people who live there, who grew up there, who know it well, should get enough recognition out of it that it feels like the place they came from. And there was uh, the the theme of what Isaiah lays on uh, Sam near the middle end of the uh, the U.S. government will never allow a black Captain America, and no self-respecting black man would ever want to pick up that shield. For the show to absolutely credit that as a perspective that is entirely valid from the point of view of pain, historical, accurate, real pain and despair, and for then Sam to be able to say, that is valid, I believe that we can do better, Mm. and for him to be inspired by his own nephews, this vision of the future, just like when Bucky wakes up and they call him his Uncle Sam. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Uncle Sam. I was like, very sneaky, nice. Uh, But when, when Bucky wakes up and the kids are playing with the shield, everyone's immediate reaction is, oh, put that down, it's priceless. But it's so key that they are themselves embracing that thing, inspired by that symbol, and able to actually believe that it could be something they can get behind and that can get behind them as opposed to merely a flag that will sideline them and erase them the way that it did Isaiah. Absolutely. And one of the really important elements of how Sam manages to walk that very narrow line and ultimately get himself into the mindset of of why it is okay for him to be Captain America is, at least the way I see it, it's to do with the fact that he is not becoming the government's Captain America. One of the things that Steve fought for very specifically throughout Civil War was to not have the government telling them what to do, that ultimately they have to be their own people and be able to make their own decisions. And that's the mindset that Sam is ultimately able to get into. The American government did not give him the Captain America suit. Wakanda did. The American government did not give him the Captain America shield. Steve did. The, the things that come to him as to how he is able to fulfill that role are not handed to him as an assignment, which is the way they're given to John. And that fundamentally is why John always feels wrong as Captain America. This is not something that he, he sought out and achieved through his own virtue, which ultimately Steve did, although, yes, he was given the, the role by the the setup of the government. It was his own values and virtues that brought him to that place. One man, Dr. Erskine, looked at Steve Rogers, looked at his past, said, why do you keep applying for the same thing over and over again? Judged him to be worthy and gave him the opportunity he needed when the US government were like, get out of my face. Absolutely. And Steve became Erskine for Sam, judging him to be worthy of the Mjolnir-like shield. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, and this, sorry, comes back to uh, what Alistair was saying earlier when I was talking about Sam not necessarily knowing what to do. It's not about right or wrong. It's not about the right thing to do necessarily. It's about the fact that up until this point, Sam 
was a supporting character to Steve's story. He was a soldier following his captain, so to speak. And he was working as a part of a team, but taking up the mantle of Captain America requires him to suddenly be in a leadership role. Mm. And that's not something that he's familiar with and would probably feel quite daunting, especially when his example is Steve Rogers. It's it's an incredibly long shadow to uh, to fill. The justification for the Falcon show existing is this is not something you simply pick up and then Captain America four suddenly uh, Sam is Captain America. This almost required six lengthy deliberate episodes where Sam thought it over. I do think his his style of leadership though is shaping up to be very similar to Steve's, which yeah. is not. With this authority you have given me, I'm going to stand in front of a group of people and tell them what to do. It's, I'm going to do the thing that I think is right, and if you follow me, then great. But I'll be over here doing it anyway. First thing Steve does after he teases Sam by saying, on your left, six times, um, when they meet in Winter Soldier, is pull him to his feet. This is, uh, we've been watching uh, Implicitly Pretentious habitually because he's fantastic but this that was a, a point that i was like yeah absolutely that is what captain america should do bring you up to his level yeah not and pull up the ladder once he's reached that step yeah. himself that's actually a constant image in the comics as well like i don't know where it came from originally but i'd seen it a number of times as i was following comics the most heavily in the 90s where Steve says something to the equivalent of, on your feet, soldier, you look like you could use a hand. Hmm. I know that he did it very distinctly to Spider-Man at one point during his uh, Maximum Carnage storyline, in which case, during that story, Peter was in the face of losing his way, going up against Carnage, and he needed a symbol like Steve to help set him back on the right path. Hmm. I think it's actually meeting Steve uh, personally during uh, Civil War, which uh, starts to sway Peter in the comics uh, towards realizing that Tony's gone in the wrong direction. Uh, Right, because that's where they get that classic line that was used in the Civil War movie, uh, plant yourself like a tree and say, no, you move. Falcon has the ability to now do that. He does it during the final uh, battle with Carly. He plants his wings. Mm Mm-hmm. When Jack Kirby returned to Marvel in the late 70s to do another Captain America run that was all him, no Stan Lee influence or Joe Simon collaboration, he made Sam a very outspoken character and often let him get the last word in when they were debating politics. Like, at one point, Steve says something along the lines of, well, I think America's come a long way, and Sam says... Well, I think we're still coming, and that's how the scene ends. Sam mm. nice. gets the last word in. When it comes to uh, John Walker, I think okay. they absolutely nailed the character. He came along at a point during Mark Grunwald's legendary decade-long run on the Captain America book, where he was originally super patriot, super-powered demagogue who loved to give America love-it-or-leave-it speeches. Right. Mm-hmm. 
and then around the time when the government was deciding whether or not they wanted Steve to keep being Captain America, John ends up doing something big in public to save the day in D.C. And when they see that, they're like, that's the guy who represents the Captain America that we want. Like, as Mark Grunwald put it in an interview in one of the rare clips of older comic creators giving video interviews that you can find on YouTube, Mm -hmm. John Walker was Captain America as Rambo. And I think the show dived into that even bigger by making him Captain America as Rambo in First Blood. Mm, They certainly Mm. run with the trauma concept for John. He is... Um, in in a way that Steve never was and Sam isn't, John is holding trauma and anger and conflict and envy. He is incredibly human, but he's an example of the the traits in ourselves that we wish we didn't have to cart around with us and what would happen if the super soldier serum enhanced those traits. He's also desperate for validation the entire show. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And he is the antithesis of what Sam says to Bucky. You've got to stop letting other people tell you who you are. John requires the external evaluation of others to tell him he's worth something. To the extent that literally his sole defense in the tribunal is, I am what you made me. Yeah. Yeah, this is exactly what... Erskine was trying to get away from way back when, not the perfect soldier, but a good man. Walker is the perfect soldier, or at least he is the perfect distillation of what it's like to be a soldier and all of the brokenness that can come with that. Mm, Yeah, one of the best scenes I think of his is when he's talking to Lamar about the medals. When Lamar says to him, you've you've got these honours because people saw what you did and want to praise you for it. And his response is, great, I've got three reminders of the worst day of my life. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people say that about uh, medals and rewards for things that they do in wartime situations. How difficult it can be to then reconcile and um, and process uh, trauma disorders because you have things on your mantelpiece or pinned to your chest whereby your country is telling you you're a hero for doing these things that hurt you every day. Yeah. There is an absolutely superb example of that in a very unusual place, which is um, a staggeringly good and multiple award-nominated YA fantasy novel called The Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking by T. Kingfisher, which culminates in a city being defended by sourdough golems. It's such a good book, and the main character is a 14-year-old girl whose uncle, it's revealed in the final few pages, is a veteran. And one of the best scenes in there is a conversation she has. After the day has been saved, she's like, I I got a medal. Like, yeah, I have one too. Did it make you feel any better? No. That's the point. There's a a parallel, just to go back to Isaiah, when he describes breaking out of the facility he was told to stay in and leaving his compatriots to rot while they were planning on bombing the uh, uh, prison 
to dispose of their mistake. He broke out, he went there, he rescued his friends. That's literally what Steve did. They, yes. uh, they may as well have, 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 have showed us. I love the fact that they don't show us footage in a kind of a, ah, ah, you see the parallels way? They, they allow us to draw that comparison ourselves in our minds. Mm-hmm. Very occasionally there'll be a little musical cue, but it'll usually be so subtle that you kind of have to be thinking of that already. Yeah, and that's backing up the point they're trying to make, which is you don't see this side of it because they didn't Mm. let you see this side of it. Mm. And Steve's exact uh, experience there, he was victorious, he managed to ascend to being the kind of Captain America he wanted to be on his own terms, and Isaiah, that was the beginning of the end for him. That was when it, he said specifically, it didn't make any difference. In other words, all of his friends died anyway. So not wishing to in any way belittle or disparage the real life actions and recognitions of our troops within this show. The, the medal is, is simply to contextualize what your government publicly wants to say about you regarding the shady shit you've been involved with. And ultimately by uh, attaching those medals to the makeshift shield that he puts together for himself towards the end, John is continuing to hide behind them. Hmm. Well, more specifically, he puts the medal on the inside of the shield so that he can look at it and get his anger going even more while he's trying to get revenge on Carly. Yep. Uh, Honestly, I feel like the uh, redemption of uh, John comes too quickly in a way uh, that is aimed at at an audience that likes to see redemption arcs. And they've spent a long time showing you that this man is in trouble. And it feels like to get out of that trouble is going to take Bucky levels of... Uh, to do the work, as Sam said. And then it's like, whoa, we fixed it. And then suddenly by the end sequence when he's US agent, he's like sort of swaggering around and it's like, hey, now he's an anti-hero. You can like him. And it's like, whoa, 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 hold the fuck on. (laughs) The one thing I do like about the US agent thing at the end is that there's still the implication that he's totally going to be Valentina's tool the Mm. way he was the tool for the people who made him Captain America. He's learned nothing. And that, so one of the things that was, that came across on Twitter, um, specifically as a result for, excuse me, specifically from an interview with the director, uh, Carrie Schofield. Mm -hmm. You'll have to correct that somewhere in there because I'm pretty sure that's wrong. Carrie Schofield. Schofield, yes. She was specific. She is on the record as saying she wanted the show to end with us liking Walker, and she feels they accomplished that. I, I think that she may be a little optimistic in that regard. Um, because, Especially based on the quote tweets I've seen of that interview. Yes. And the thing going on there is that. I definitely agree that the show made us empathize with Walker. It did not make him a complete asshole in the way that the comics sometimes make Walker out to be because it leans a lot heavier into his conservative politics where politics of Walker don't come up, don't come up at all in the show. Mm. But as far as Walker is concerned, and his quote-unquote redemption, 
my reading of it is not necessarily that he did redeem himself. He potentially took a step towards doing so because he put doing his job, more importantly, he put saving lives over his personal vendetta with Carly. And that was the right thing to do. And that's also why, in my opinion, Sam and Bucky were fine to have him be around because he did the right thing once. But even then, when they split up and go after the Flag Smashers in that final part of episode six, Sam's still like pointing like, Bucky, you go with Walker. I don't trust him to be on his own. And when there's supposed camaraderie happening at the end there, it's really more instigated by Walker himself. And Bucky's like, yeah, okay, fine, uh, whatever. Let's let's go and wrap up the yeah. rest of this now. It's another instance of Marvel saying, well, PTSD can be fixed in an afternoon, which is not the direct text but by the fact that they never reference Tony, like it's, I'm talking here about Iron Man three, the biggest bugbear, the fact that the first two acts spend a lot of time with Robert Downey Jr. giving us this very jittery, upset performance of someone who has PTSD, and then by the third act, it's like, well, I'm active now. I don't need to worry about this. Now, the subtext of the following films is, no, he hasn't dealt with that, and here's how he's dealing with it in in different fooling himself ways, but the actual film's text is, let's just not worry about that after that. And in the... Surely that's an issue which is a function more of medium than story and it's yeah. something which we run into a lot here mm-hmm. it's exactly the same thing as, as walker walker's a dangerous psychopath mm-hmm. it's, hev- it's heavily implied he beheaded a man with captain america's shield in front of the internet you, you don't walk away from that no and yet because because of the, the the nature of the show because it's six hour six hour long segments you have to have some degree of closure and I, I think they absolutely fumbled the landing. And I, I agree completely with the point that when he's trying to be all charmy at the end, it's all one-way traffic. Bucky's just like, great. He left me with, with the murderer. Cool. Thanks, Cap. <laughs> I've know? just thought of something, and this is just off the top of my head. Uh, Malcolm Spellman, who is a fantastic way of, of putting across what he feels, uh, he's the, the show creator, about where they were trying to pitch it uh, in the making of was talking about various buddy comedies and sort of acting out a clock with his hand and then when he got up to you know before he reached rush hour he stopped at lethal weapon and said they definitely wanted to make the tone of this feel more like lethal weapon directed uh, so written by shane black who co-wrote and directed uh, iron man 3 so we got Riggs and his fucking PTSD in that first film. And then by the end, and then for the many, many sequels, it's just, <laughs> let's just make some jokes. Mm. Again, PTSD seems to be something that in Shane Black's head can be uh, fixed with camaraderie and never needs to be addressed there, again. There is an irony in the fact that John is sent off with Bucky at the end there, when you've got Sam Wilson, action therapist, right Mm -hmm. there, who's been doing all the good stuff and the good work so far. And Bucky doesn't say... But he busy. May I fix you up with my therapist? Yes, indeed. Side note, Sharon, you're a great judge of these usually. How did this one come off? Because often you you rage about bad movie therapists. (laughs) 
We, yeah, we generally, can move on to Bucket here. Generally now. speaking, I'll be I'll be brief with this one because there's there's basically two. Thanks examples. for making it weird. <laughs> <laughs> there's two examples of uh, actual therapists as opposed to metaphorical therapy that mm-hmm. often goes on in in narrative um, the way narratives play out. Yeah. The the two therapists in this are uh, Bucky's therapist Christina mm-hmm. and Sam himself, who both of them are, I think... It's easy to forget that Sam was a counsellor when Steve met him. I I never forget that. It's easy for (laughs) other people than you to forget that Sam actually has training in No, I think, honestly, I think, yes, you're right. Specifically military-focused. It's it's easy to let go of that, but ultimately it's in everything that uh, Anthony Mackie does Mm. when he portrays this character. And it's noteworthy that... so much of how he performs. It's noteworthy that the moment Sam is dusted, Steve goes into that line of support. Yes, We see at the beginning of Endgame. So, yes. Somebody has to be. So, the two Um, examples... Of but therapists. These, these two examples of therapists are specifically therapists who work with veterans. And while, yes, there are moments in what both of them do that had me as a person-centred civilian counsellor working in a completely different sphere, um, going, oh, that's probably not something that I would do. No, but... Different modes of therapy and different methods require people to act in different ways. And one of the things that I really liked about Christina's therapy with Bucky, uh, particularly towards the beginning, is how they obviously have a rapport that is strong enough to withstand her challenging him very directly, which most therapists probably would not do because the relationship has to be pretty secure to be able to stand that. But when your uh, clients are people who've been in the military, then that you sometimes there's an element of um, using that familiarity with authority and being told what to do and using that to nudge them in certain directions but you still have to be really really careful with it because ultimately with therapy what you're teaching people is it's okay to make your own decisions and that's a big shift for veterans mm-hmm. it's the, the 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 notebook gag which is which obviously has just a huge history. Which is like okay, gets yes, no, and and Bucky's like, oh come on, Doc, no, not the notebook thing. Come mm. on, you know. <laughs> the significance of both Sam and I'm sorry, her name was Catherine. Christina. Christina. Okay, that they not only specialize in therapy for veterans, but they both served. Like that was actually something that came up, I think, in episode two. And the fact that she is a soldier and Bucky was a soldier specifically may have contributed to some of that camaraderie because I think that there can sometimes be a disconnect between the way people interact if one has served and the other hasn't. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. the conversations... The, the shared experience is very different. Yeah, there's there's background like, that you can shorthand if you've got similar experiences to the other person. It's something that you, you have to be careful of because you can it can lead to making assumptions. But ultimately, it you see this a lot with therapists, 
people will specialise in things that they have not just professional but personal experience of. Um, it's like the the optician phenomena. I have never had an optician who didn't wear glasses. You go into <laughs> helping people with something because at one point somebody helped you with that. It's a it's a paying forwards, and um, it it enables you to make connections with people um, around. Uh, a sense of they're sitting with somebody who is going to understand what up till this point they've been telling <coughs> themselves that nobody could understand. Mm. And that can be a really, really powerful thing. Like I said, you've got to be careful that it doesn't lead to making assumptions, but often clients who are looking for therapy will try and find a therapist who's got personal experience in the thing that they're going through. So in effect, they represent a transitionary stage between trusting the people giving you orders, trusting someone who has been given orders, trusting in yourself to give yourself your own orders. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Right. And I'd say that's also something that's sort of extended to reactions to the politics of Falcon in the critical sphere because uh, one of the critics I follow on Twitter, uh, Vice Victus, is a veteran and his takes on this show have been not completely wildly different from everyone else's but come through a very distinct lens that shows the themes and nuances a little more respect than some people who just look at the fact that there was cooperation with the Department of Defense and right off the whole show's politics right there. Yeah, honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why the the Captain America trilogy and specifically Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier, are the, the Marvel movies that I connect with the most. While I have not served, I have... I, I was brought up in a military family. My dad was in the Air Force and my mum was in the Air Force up to the point where I was born. So that living on base, knowing people who are who have to do what they're told, go where they're told, do things around set routines and um, always have this constant umbrella of even if everything seems safe at any point, you could be killed. It creates a, a state of uh, heightened vigilance that it is very very difficult to recover from and as a result the shorthand that those stories and then on into this series use immediately feel familiar to me in a way that I think that there are going to be people who have no familiarity with that kind of environment and so it doesn't click with them so immediately. Marvel have always been excellent at uh two things. Uh, one is to have something of substance ready to lay down, and the other is jazz, being able to riff with what they have to be able to create something new. The, the, the big secret behind how the MCU keeps going is it makes good decisions regarding what to do with what they have, as opposed to wild course correction, which tends to make their competitors more erratic of an output. Sebastian Stan, they had no idea when they made uh, First Avenger how good of a physical actor he was. Um, a lot of people back when uh, Winter Soldier came out were like, ah, he's just kind of Robocop, there's not much to him. The general focus in the press, at least, was far more on how Robert Redford was playing his antagonist performance, and absolutely not going to take away from that. It was fantastic. But Winter Soldier had my attention. I was fascinated 
visually speaking, by his performance in that film. And I have never been disappointed since. This, specifically in the episode where he's being deprogrammed in Wakanda in that flashback, is some of the finest physical acting I've seen in an MCU film. Mm. Just that one sequence where there's tears forming in his eyes as he's just pushing through those words. He has never really been given major credit because he's up against people like Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans uh, in terms of... Who get all the good dialogue. Who get all the good dialogue. (laughs) He has to do so much with very little in script. And, you know, he gets some great kind of like calm, quiet wording in this film, but there's so... In this film, it feels like a film. In this production... And it, it, it feels like this is something that was a long time coming, the, the, the rehabilitation side of, of, um, of James to become a human being again. And everything Ooh. with him comes gradually. That's one of the things I really appreciate about his performance. It astounded me to hear him say in the making of that he was really uncertain about whether or not he could maintain the consistency yeah. of the character throughout all of this material. And it's it's there in how he stands, in how he looks at people, in how he uh, expresses things or doesn't express things mm. on his face when he's standing there completely immobile and you can see what's going on underneath because of what you don't see happening on the surface. Yeah. Also, the dude is funny. Yeah. <laughs> he's, yes. he's just profoundly funny. Uh, I mean, I'd argue far and away the best episode here is episode five, which is Agreed. what I, what, what I call the, what, what I call the fanfic hour. The you know we will, now, <laughs> we will now process our feelings with a Quaker talking stick made out of vibranium, and and so much of that is. Sam and, and Bucky especially opening up, and it's just it's little, little things like when everyone's fixing the boat and the motor shows up and think about so so how are we going to lift it? And Bucky just one hands this three ton motor off the back of the truck with the vibranium arm. The moment in the last episode where he's chugging a beer, talking away to somebody with both Sam's nephews hanging off the arm and he, just no selling it. Mm. He's adorable, and he's adorable in a way the movies have never let him be. I think we can get used to uh, Marvel being really good in their penultimate episodes of their TV shows. One Division was the same. The the lengthy travel back into uh, Wanda's past uh, before the big fireworks show at the end. Ultimately, Marvel have always been criticized for having, uh, since the original Iron Man, mm. Tony goes through the important part of his transformation at the beginning of Act 3, and then the end of Act 3 is the fight with Ironmonger. And that has continued a long way. Mm. There are exceptions, and it would appear that anything directed by the Russos seems to be able to manage its action and drama in waves throughout the film, with major gut punches at the end. Also, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 manages to back end a lot of the development and conclusions mm, yeah but i think that's something that if they're going to go forward with tv and particularly the the miniseries format they're going to have to start letting go of that because when you're piecing things out into uh, 45 minute mm. slots you can't waste all of your last one mm. on 
action beats because it's people tune out you you can't expect them to sustain the adrenaline that in a movie you would be playing with throughout those two acts yeah it's never just action Uh, the 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 last episode of wandavision had its share of amazing moments Mm. the ship of theseus that we just mentioned wanders saying goodbye to vision but it's kind of muddied by the we have to have that fireworks show that big superhero fight and it was the same with the episode six in this. There was muddled feelings and some of it felt rushed. I would say six, while it has some of the highest points, also has some of the lo- lowest points in terms of the overall series. Mm, yeah. I've but been I- calling episode six an excuse for Sam to do hero poses. <laughs> <laughs> Which Anthony Mackie deserved. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Alex, you mentioned, or maybe it was Sharon that mentioned, that the MCU has been, always been very good at using what it has. That was me. Okay, yes. And the significance here is that now that we've, now that the Infinity Saga is over, and a lot of their biggest names have moved on for various reasons. The intriguing thing with Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision and a lot of the stuff that's going to come forward from here, some of it's going to be new stuff, but the first things they started building was using characters that they already had that did not get the same amount of screen time. Mm. And that's where... Elizabeth Olsen and, pa- and Paul Bettany were able to bring stuff on onto display in their repertoire that was not present in the movies or was used very shallowly. Mm-hmm. And it's the same is true here of Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan. If there's one thing that I appreciate about this show in particular, it's that when it was being promoted initially with the trailers and everything like that, it balanced everything very heavily on the buddy cop aspect or the buddy comedy action comedy aspect of it, where the two of them are coming into conflicts and having squabbles and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Oh yes, hilarity hijinks ensue and everything like that. But for the most part, a lot of that, that specific conflict, that ridiculous conflict is, only in episode two. And even though they have continuing arguments and other stuff beyond that throughout the other episodes, that them being, them having a conflict that is actually getting in the way of doing the work, whether it's the work of stopping the flag smashers or the work of resolving their individual differences that's given one very specific place to live and then the conflict from there comes between either the dynamic that is introduced as soon as Zemo is a part of the picture and or alternately as soon as Walker is a part of the picture and then from there all the way into episode 5 all of a sudden we see the two of them come to terms and there's some of the same humor going on there, but they get a chance to actually properly build rapport between each other by being vulnerable in a way that they couldn't back when they were just so pissed at each other 
um, because of the whole you gave up the shield mm. motif. Mm. I think a big part of that plays into the the healing theme of the show. Mm. And in the sense that building on the, the buddy cop tropes, uh, the buddy cop, the buddy comedy tropes, Classically, when you see that that kind of two-hander, oh, these guys hate each other, but they really, really get on and they're, they're great mates, you see the humorous interactions and then by the end of it, it's like everything is magically fixed through the power of banter. But the what, what this expands that into is, yes, you have the, the connection and you have the banter and that's what forms the rapport. But then, as Sam explicitly says, you have to do the work. You have to... Um, the, the banter makes you feel safe uh, so that the, the things that you need to resolve can come to the surface and you don't have to continually have that defensiveness that pushes them back down again. And this has the uh, the room, and dare I say it, the modernity, to allow those things that need to be repaired to show themselves. Whereas classically, when you had a two-guy story where they had shit to deal with, God forbid any of it be allowed to come to the surface, because that's not what guys do. And that's what I was really appreciative of the moving past for this. Because it, it wouldn't have worked with this dynamic. I noted the um, there's a, a sort of the ghost of Jason Bourne in this. Uh, the Bourne supremacy uh, features a, a, a subplot where Jason remembers a married couple that he was forced to assassinate in his past. And his finale to that film is to track down the now almost adult daughter of that couple and tell them your father didn't kill your mother and to lay this girl's dreadful fears to rest as a way of moving forwards and it felt like absolutely Bucky was doing that so there's been this kind of passage from the original James Bond through to uh, Jason Bourne through to Captain America and now we're here mm. and and we're moving forwards beyond like the, we are examining effectively living weapons and how they reabsorb their human selves. Yeah, and, and it's shown visually in a way that pays off in this that was planted films ago. Yeah. There's a thread throughout this about uh, sleeping on the floor. When Steve meets Sam yeah. in... Uh, Winter Soldier, he says about, I can't sleep, or uh, Sam says, you can't sleep because the bed's too soft. Like a marshmallow. Yeah. And then uh, in Civil War, when they first find Bucky in the apartment, he is sleeping on the floor. And in the first episode of this, he is sleeping on the floor. And when he stays at Sarah's house, he is sleeping sleeping on the couch. Yep. And he wakes up smiling. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, well, the because, kids are being adorable. Well, the yeah. kids are being adorable, but <laughs> fundamentally, he has now reached a point where he can feel safe. Hmm. And feeling safe is so fundamental to being able to heal trauma because the whole point of trauma and why it gets stuck in your brain is because your nervous system is screaming at you, you are not safe, you need to be on alert. And this is because Sam's Captain America, unlike the very isolated Steve Rogers, brings with him community and family. Yeah. 
which is something that Bucky hasn't had real access to for about 78 years. And one one thing I've seen a lot of people say is that the title card at the end of the last episode shouldn't have just changed to Captain America and the Winter Soldier. It should have changed to Captain America and the White Wolf. And everything we've been talking about in regards to Bucky is exactly why. Agreed. Well, so I do want to respond to that because I was definitely one of those people saying that. But it was actually a part of that same interview that I name-checked a moment ago where Carrie Scoglin basically said that the choice to change the title card at the end was a very last-minute thing. But when they discussed the possibility of doing that for Bucky as well, the, the thought of Scoglin, at least, was the fact that Sam has fully accepted the mantle of Captain America, but that even though Bucky is in the middle of the process and is making progress towards shedding who he was as the Winter Soldier, he hasn't necessarily completely picked a new identity for himself. Hmm. He is potentially still in transition. True. Although I, uh, I would like to consider the moment in Wakanda when he was able to push through those words as the moment he was no longer the Winter Soldier. Mm, and a big Even though Zemo keeps calling him that because yeah. Zemo wants to make him feel like a living weapon. Absolutely. And a big part and of that is, again, going back to this idea of safety. There is a reason that he is safer next to that campfire than he has been anywhere else before. And that is the fact that Io is standing there saying, I can hold this for you if you... If you turn and if you start being the Winter Soldier again, it's okay. I'm here. I will not let you hurt anyone else. That's huge. That is incredibly powerful for somebody who doesn't feel like they can trust themselves. And whether or not Io calls him White Wolf is given a lot of weight in the show. Like when they go to take Zemo and they end up fighting Walker and Zemo's able to escape, the scene ends with Io calling Bucky just James. Mm. Mm. But when he helps them find Zemo later in episode five, it's back to White Wolf. This is why I feel like he's earned that. Mm. Mm. But I don't think he's decided yet what the White Wolf is. Mm. I think, strangely, he he travels further than Sam Mm -hmm. in the show. So much of Sam's narrative is getting out of his own way. And so much of Bucky's narrative is getting the stuff that's in his head out of his own way. And you can, going back to your point earlier about about Stan's physical performance, it is apples and oranges from that first episode and the second episode, pardon me, and one of my favorite moments in the show, which is when Lamar goes, hi, I'm I'm Battlestar. And he just goes from blanks to to stop the truck. (laughs) And everything is encapsulated in, in, in just that moment of this, of this man who is beautifully described elsewhere as having been alive for an annoyingly long amount of time. Just going, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and you compare that to, to another one of my favorite moments at the cookout at the end, where he shows up and he is the only person on that dock who has bought something from a bakery and not made it. And he's shown up late and he's in shades. <laughs> and you know, the whole thing is so clearly... Oh, it's the idiot white boy. Great, grab a seat. You know, and he, he's accepted. I think he's used to being that by now. Yes. <laughs> it could be worse. He could have brought something with mayonnaise. Oh, Ooh. don't even 
Don't even. More uh, raisins. Oh, there is a superb TikToker called uh, called Nikkei Marina, and I'll send you the um the the link to her account. She's an Air Force veteran and a PTSD sufferer, and she has shown her work has shown up on Sebastian Stan's Instagram stories a few times because she has recapped each episode hilariously. She's the one who described Bucky as having been alive for an annoyingly long amount of time. She's the one who, who gave him this godlike put down of look, only one person in this conversation could plausibly have shot JFK. <laughs> oh, nice. And then he spends the rest of the conversation alternately shaking his head and nodding and then shaking yeah, his exactly. head again. <laughs> exactly. To go back to two underused, I suppose, characters, because they're both fantastic, uh, that we've just invoked. Clay Bennett as Lamar Bradley or Battlestar. Uh, Again, in the making of, he mentions that when he turned up for the interview, he was like, I really hope I'm this character. I have this issue where he's on the front cover. And there was just this sense of... You know, now the MCU have moved on from hiring people like Gwyneth Paltrow, who for her fantastic performances, Pepper Potts was like, did I read the comics? No, my brother may have done, to um, effectively people who have grown up with Marvel comics. And in the near future, we're going to get people who have grown up with the MCU. And it's being reflected by these characters. Yeah. Walker talks openly about how he was in the Academy when Steve was active as an Avenger. So you have this really weird metafictional breakdown where the people making the stories have the same viewpoint as the characters. Even one of the Flag Smashers talks about being a Captain America fan, and Carly says, I don't know whether or not I should make fun of you for that yet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that's going to be fundamental to them transitioning into legacy status for these characters, Mm. because you've now got people who've grown up with much more recent versions and don't cling to this idea of, well, this is what Stan Lee came up with 60 years ago, so this is what we have to stick to. Mm. Um, And the other uh, person I wanted to mention, Florence Kasumba as Io. Did anyone see that TikTok where uh, the Dora Milaje were, you know, on lockdown at home individually, just doing staff practice in their back gardens and tossing yeah. the staff to each other? They are amazing. And Florence Kasumba, uh, as representation for that particular side of Wakanda, just having them there made, I, I just, I could feel that the Ludwig Göransson, that kind of just the little drum beats as they turned up. And it was like suddenly the, the, the feel of Wakanda and the flavor of Wakanda came back and my god after 2020's loss we needed it I did not realize until I actually investigated further because she was name checked pretty early on when people were talking about the show Mm -hmm. I went back and I'm like oh she's the one that was in Civil War all the way back when and she's been constantly in the background even if she's not a main character. She's just there as being one of the Dora Milaje, and now she actually gets some proper screen time. N- not enough. I would have. I, I would have liked to see more of her, and I would like to see more of her. Mm. But it, if there was one thing that I was frustrated, like we'll talk about Lamar, absolutely. But if there was one thing I was frustrated about this show, and if and that maybe more of the show would have given more room for a lot of things to breathe. 
it was exploring what was going on with her specifically as being the driving force of the other Dora bringing Zemo to justice there. Hmm. Because it seems clear from her first conversation with Bucky that she, it isn't simply a Dora thing. It is a personal thing that she is carrying around with her. And is she able to separate out her feelings from her duty in regards to Zemo? Hmm. Like, at one point, I was wondering to myself, is she actually going to do what T'Challa decided way back in Civil War is to just make sure that he's in prison and will never harm anybody again? Or is she going to try and remove him from the board? One of the things that impressed me most, uh, they did an interview with her in the making of Doc, and she was talking about the playing a, a relatively small role, meaning that you you don't always know exactly when they're going to need you, but you have to be ready with that character when they do. So they, and you just like answer the call and immediately, yes, I am Dora Milaje Absolutely, again. and to be able to do that, there has to be a core of authenticity between yourself and that character. And I think that's where we maybe see that not happen with actors like Gwyneth Paltrow, who don't have so much personally invested in the uh, in the the character in that when they're brought back in further down the line i think she struggled for pepper a couple of times to yeah. be honest uh, she, uh, pepper yeah. remains a, a brilliant symbolic part of robert downey jr's full commitment to tony stark mm. but it's almost like pepper is bigger than gwyneth paltrow in this scenario yeah. whereas robert downey jr is almost bigger than tony stark yeah yeah but I was well, very impressed by Kasumba's ability to just yeah. snap straight back into that character. And it also means that she and her cohorts have to constantly practice staff skills. Her <laughs> skills with a bow staff. She's always getting picked up by Marvel for that. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. I, I, without knowing enough about the actor's story, I suspect that when she was tagged for this specifically the importance of the thing that she was going to be helping to carry before bl the Black Panther movie was a thing, but as a representative of Wakanda in mm. Civil War, they had to find somebody that was going to take that seriously. Mm -hmm. She took it seriously. Absolutely. We mentioned Zemo, and I was talking about him earlier today with Sharon. There are some things I really like about what they did with Zemo, and a couple of things I was like, I'm not so sure about that. The... Him being utterly anti-fascist was something that wasn't really put across back in Civil War when he played this character. I mean, he went around drowning Hydra agents, so that's pretty anti-fascist. So it's strange to have uh, an antagonist and a villain who has these sensibilities because it's difficult to disagree with them. But his there should be no super soldiers is also kind of like puts him in direct opposition with a lot of the uh, uh, characters in the Captain America expanded universe. But there was one element to him which they introduced in this with like a throwaway remark, which brings him back to his comic roots. And it's like, well, you didn't mention that before. He says that his he and his family were kind of royalty before the Avengers came along and smashed up Sokovia. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The way you put it before in Civil War made it sound like you were just a normal guy who was a soldier 
like kind of maybe better at, at being a tactician than the average soldier, but that you're you had a family and they died horribly during the Sokovia thing. Now we find out you're basically Doctor Doom. <laughs> oh, no, oh no, I'm I, I'm absolutely yeah. there, for, the, the, there for stern Teutonic dad dancing Zemo. <laughs> but that's the thing, yeah. Like we like to rehabilitate our villains. Agatha, we just grabbed her and went, "Yes, we love you." Um, but um, but Zemo specifically, everyone was just like sort of tweeting him, like doing a little white boy dance, and and then him talking about Marvin Gaye. We we like antagonists who can sometimes come off as sort of anti-villains. But to that end. If they do something that pleases us, we might willingly forget a lot of dire consequences of their actions in the past. Because of Zemo, the snap happened. The Avengers were not there and unified against Thanos. Yeah, I'm like, this is a Zemo that I could see leading the Thunderbolts, whereas yeah. Zemo, as presented in Civil War, wasn't necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. There was too much melancholy in everything that surrounded him for us to be able to see yeah. those uh, those elements. But I do think that you do have a point, Alex. How are they going to reconcile anti-fascist and, and sort of having a fundamental platform of, I don't think anybody deserves to be superior to anyone else. Oh, by the way, my butler's doing my dirty work for me while I'm in jail. Yeah, about that. <laughs> and the butler dirty work. Uh, we can continue incorporating Zemo into the conversation, but we have to, to talk about the flag smashers because ultimately they end up at the mercy of Zemo's... Um, what's the opposite of plot armour? Plot, <laughs> plot, nuke it from orbit, only way to be sure, I believe, so we don't have to resolve this fucking thorny issue. Right, <clears throat> They also need to kill off everyone who knows Sharon is the power broker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that will talk about Sharon. I think maybe dead last because uh, Sharon has some things to say about Sharon. Yeah. Um, you might have to cut me off before I start swearing. Yeah. Well, we've got another 39 minutes left. Now, uh, the Flag Smashers are a... That was a really weighty scenario for them to take on because there are parallels to a lot of real-world scenarios and uh, there are arguments that you could simply invoke real-world scenarios rather than tying them to something that happened in the MCU, in this case, the snap and the blip. Making them come from that was a way of saying to all of those people who are like, oh, this snap isn't going to have any long-term ramifications. Oh, no. Well, what about these guys? But then when they've got these guys front and center, it's like, okay, so what are the Flag Smashers about? It's unclear. Mark Grunwald also created the Flag Smasher Mm -hmm. in addition to creating John Walker. And he specifically created John Walker in a sort of self-response to creating the Flag Smasher because he just sort of realized, oh, I sort of accidentally implied that nationalism is a virtue. I need to introduce this guy to show that absolutely not. The character of, in the comics, Carl Morgenthau mm-hmm. as the Flag Smasher uh, is a thing. So the, the, the Carly, it, that's where the name comes from. Mm-hmm. But the organization that Flag Smasher ends up developing is not called the Flag Smashers. It is one of the most ridiculous <laughs> acronyms on the planet I have the panel right in front of me right now. Go for it. I wanted to bring this up. It is Ultimatum, the Underground, Liberated, Totally Integrated, Mobile Army to Unite Mankind. (sighs) Which spells? Ultimatum. Ultimatum. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
I mean, that's sitting at home going, I've got to make words that fit with this. Okay. If your, if your organization's title is longer than a TikTok, you are not going to succeed in this day and age. Like, if you want to call it that, it doesn't need to be an anagram. Just call it that. Okay, so... To, the, their intention was to make the Flag Smashers sympathetic and to give us an idea of what they were fighting for. I feel like this fluctuated and varied from episode to episode. There is also evidence uh, that suggests there were dropped threads regarding exactly what this was going to be about. And the uh, showrunner has denied that this was anything to do with pandemic-related show threads, which would then suddenly become way too thorny an issue to uh, to tie to the Flag Smashers. If anything feels like it was cut down, it feels like it was everything having to do with Mama Donya. I was going to say, yeah, that Mama Donya gets introduced suddenly, and like, oh, she must really matter to these, and she's already dead. Mm. <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the flaws with the way the Flag Smashers are presented is that there is a, uh, a cognitive disconnect between the way Sam talks about their motives. Mm -hmm. And when he has conversations with Carly, it's evident that he sees what their motivations are. He understands their uh, what's, what's driving them and what they want to achieve. And um, he points out to other people that Carly started all of this by giving people, hungry people food and sick people medicine, and that builds a lot of loyalty. But what is said about them and what we see them doing, there's a bit of a gap in the middle there, and they don't really mash up. I noted that uh, one thing... The escalation comes too fast. Yeah. Although, side note, this was wonderful the um again in the making of what they positioned sam as at the end when he's in his brand new captain america outfit looking like a freaking angel is not a cop or not a soldier but a first responder somebody who's there to rescue absolutely he primarily has the white and red going on in his costume which implies that an emt exactly somebody who goes in there and does not ask questions about who's to blame for this who needs to be arrested nothing like that that doesn't matter we are here to save the people who are hurt he's not there to smash things shoot things or kill people and ultimately steve never was there's a very specific shot in the original first avenger where steve um, now captain america having rescued his uh, buddies busts in through a doorway with a pistol shooting nazis that's fine with uh in that that shot which always felt a little bit off it's like hang on should cap have a pistol and then during the uh montage he's got the uh, machine gun as well and then he, he kind of he lowers that lets that down and Bucky very much is behind this machine gun and that becomes his totemic thing as the Winter Soldier while Steve leans <laughs> on the shield instead. And they evoke that in Walker as he turns up one of his first big cap moments. He's shooting a gun whilst holding his shield. He's got a gun pistol at his holster. Yeah, and you're absolutely and, 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 right and, and, about the colours in the in the uniform. Walker's costume leans very heavily on blue yeah. and Sam's is almost absent of blue. It's got loads of blue, but it's very white with the red kind of standing out on that. Yeah. Like, like we said, the um, the 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 EMT side of it. Mm, yeah. J- just to cycle back around to that that uh, Walker with the pistol moment because I think it, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the first things he does in the fight. 
I think it's about um, about yeah. thirty seconds in. He pulls a pistol mm-hmm. and he shoots at an eighteen-year-old girl. Yeah. And I'm, I would have to watch the episode again, but I think the others actually reacted. I think there is a kind of what. Yeah, like Bucky gives him a quick look back, like in the middle of the fight. To talk a little bit about the sudden escalation mm-hmm. as regards to the flag smashers. I actually had ended up when I was doing my revisit of the show. I, I did a, a tiny amount of research because the death of Mama Donia would seem to be the turning point for Carly to suddenly decide. I'm going to kill people now, and I'm not killing people in order to obtain my objective. I'm killing people who we have already defeated, who weren't necessarily trying to kill us, but were just trying to prevent us from taking stuff as a way of sending a message. And the implication is here is if the people that are close to me that die, excuse me, if there are people that are close to me that die as a result of what I believe is their actions then I am going to punish them for having done so. Mm. But the thing that Mamadonia dies from is tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. Tuberculosis doesn't seem to kill people suddenly. It's extremely dangerous. It lingers, But you can treat it with medicine and proper medical care, and maybe Mamadonia wasn't getting that. But then my question becomes, if Mama Donia was so important to you and you were going around stealing medicine, why was one of the first things you didn't do was bring that yeah. medicine to Mama Donia? This feels like a casualty of that dropped storyline. I think that it was something that wasn't tuberculosis. But this could just be um, like, like seeing things where they aren't necessarily. One thing that Nando V Movies, who noted that original um, dropped thread potential uh who also noted that don't trust sharon carter way back here around civil war time um (laughs) was that uh he reshuffled the flag smashers to the point where the person that john kills at the end of episode four is carly and up Mm -hmm. up to that point carly has been the conscience of the flag smashers Mm -hmm. and has been trying not to hurt people and john killing her thus unleashes the darker side of the flag smashers because they've he's taken away its good intentions and its safety measures instead in the show by this point carly has already blown up a building and the people inside and her companions can already see her darker descent i did like that 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 was one of the last things i watched before recording today um the one thing that i felt was like maybe a misstep was the idea that Batrock was the one that was going to suddenly lead the Flag Smashers towards darker ends, because the impression that I always got from Batrock is that he was in this for the money and personal glory. In the show itself, he doesn't care about the cause. He's literally just there to take back uh, what he feels he lost at the hands of Sam, which Mm -hmm. is his... Not his honor, but like, you know, he, he made him look like a fool. His dignity. So I'm going to, yeah, dignity. That's the word, yes. It's a very, so, very packed show. There's no room for people with no stake in this. That was one of my like tiny fanboy annoyances with the finale because like when he came back in this show, I was so excited. I didn't mm. know they were bringing him back. And when he was oh. killed as part of that whole, we need to kill off everyone who knows who Sharon is now part of the finale 
I was just like, oh, they got rid of this guy who's actually a pretty fun presence in action scenes. Hmm. So it's, can anyone crystallize how what the Flag Smashers wanted and ultimately where they went wrong within the context of the show? I'll take a moment, is it? Go for it. Um, they effectively wanted to return to the global community, which is heavily implied, uh, grew up in the aftermath of the blip, something yeah. which we get hints at in Endgame, where the environment is healing, where people naturally pull together an awful lot yeah. more. Uh, and the, obviously the the, hor- the horrific price of this is 50% of everyone in the universe is dead. Yeah. The payoff is suddenly there is a lot more room and there's a lot more resources and everyone who's around matters more. And further to that, the uh, the whole you know the whole idea of the blip and everyone suddenly returning, and the thing which we see so beautifully in Wonder Vision, of that this is just existential terror on top of existential terror. Mm. The planet is reeling at every level from this. Nothing is working right, and so the flag smashes are all are almost. And I remember when the show rolled and there were a lot of people who were like wait these people are supposed to be the bad guys and i was like hang on the, no the, the flag smashes are almost altruistic luddites mm. they're people who want things to go back to when they were better as a consequence of something worse which is colossally morally ambiguous and at the same time kind of compelling it is compelling, especially because they all seem to want to do this out of compassion for people, and yet their very argument lends insidious weight to Thanos's philosophy that Precisely. we'll do much better with only half of us here. We really don't want to be in a place where Thanos was right. But I think that <laughs> yeah. although, and yes, it, it seeds that, what Sam says in his closing statement brings that back around to it's not the fact that 50% of the people were gone. It's the fact that because 50% of the people were gone, the governments of the world suddenly had the political will to fix things and make them better. The The bottom line is Thanos is talking out of his backside. We have the resources to feed, to clothe, to shelter everybody on this planet. Exactly. They don't want to. So if Thanos had just clicked his fingers and then the, all the governments had gone, oh, fuck, I'm now suddenly making that email that's going to feed the poor of the world. What is happening here? Then suddenly exactly. he fixes it without anyone having to exactly. turn to dust. What, what I kind of took the, the flag smashers as well to like, get back. Or just like, tacos for all. Exactly. You can get infinite Um, clicks. Fuck it. What the Flag Smashers seem to want to go back to is not the absence of people. It's the 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 everything having suddenly been upended, which means that we can now build fairer systems. So what you're saying is to perpetuate blitz spirit so that we are kind to each other when not in a crisis. No, we've just got to be kind to each other. (laughs) If I was gonna sum up. the Flag Smashers conflict, it's that like, them and the GRC are basically two groups fighting for different definitions of normal. The GRC wants to go back to normal, and the Flag Smashers sort of want to preserve 
their sense of normal. Yeah, because the Flag Smashers have now had five years of progress. They've had five years worth of the world moving towards a fairer, uh, more equal system. It's significant that most of them are young, while most of the ones in charge are old. Precisely, and not only old, they are wealthy. When Sam says, who's in that room? Is it people who are affected by the decisions you make, or is it just more people like you? It's the wealthy, it's the powerful. The normal they want to get back to is the world in which they have their wealth, their power. And while, yes, I think they've had to um, smooth out a lot of the things in this that connect to current circumstances, it would be foolish not to see a even accidental parallel between the fact that there are some people who are looking at the way the world is at the moment, which is is for a lot of people is still very different from how it was a year and a half ago and saying, actually, I don't want to go back to a world in which I have to drive a two hour round trip every day to work 40 hours a week for you. And there's a, on top of all of that, where the GRC is supposedly trying to help out more the people that came back than the people that remained, which is one of the core tenets of the Flag Smasher philosophy, there is a certain bitter irony in the fact that Sam is one of the people that got snapped away, mm-hmm. and yet what, at the very beginning of this show, when he's trying to get that loan ostensibly the bank should be like, oh yes, we're going to try and help you because we want to help you reacclimate into the society. Oh no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. Uh, why? Um, can't say. It's complicated. Uh, five years of no income. Mm, yeah, five years no. of no income. How, oh, oh yes, oh look, a bear has nothing to do with the color of your skin. <laughs> but this is, this is the unspoken element of it. It's not that the GRC are more interested in helping the people who came back. They are more interested in helping the rich white people who came back. Everybody yeah. else can step to the side. Privilege. So uh, ultimately, this means that the flag smashers by the end seem to have lost their way and are trying try to f- effectively force the issue with with kidnapping and then um, murder. That that's that's what they've ultimately uh, brought themselves up to. And I think you said something the other day, Sharon, about the British government never seeming to be uh, criticised because whatever their um, that their methods are, the results speak for themselves. So it's like, well, we got a whole load of vaccines, so what's the point of arguing with us? And those other countries that need the vaccine, they really should have thought of that before becoming not Britain. The, the point that I was trying to make was it's very difficult to argue um, and oppose a, a party that's in power when you're having two different arguments, when the opposition is your methods stink to high heaven... But what they're saying is it doesn't matter what our methods are because we're achieving our goals. Mm. But their goals aren't necessarily everybody else's goals. So because the Flag Smashers were not actually able to achieve something positive, then what they wanted to do is just kind of impossible to really put a finger on because they are defeated in every possible way, aside from Captain America advocating for Carly post-mortem. She has to die 
and immediately become a martyr to the cause in order to be listened to. Mm. And for then just the positive aspects of what they were attempting to do to be yeah. somehow extracted from all of the negative aspects, which were fairly clumsily implemented. Which is especially egregious when one of the things Carly was trying to fight for was the idea that her and her people shouldn't have to die to be able to fight for their cause. But then in the wake of John murdering one of her cohorts, she flips over to, it doesn't matter if we die, the movement will live on. Yeah, she. Yeah, that is a direct quote. And also, that by the end, the rest of the Flag Smashers are like, we're not really with you on this. And she's like, one world! And then they all have to kind of agree. And it would have been edifying had they been driven away to reformulate how they feel, even if it is it does entail jail time for them to be able to then evolve what they were trying to do. The clean break of having Zemo's butler blow them up was maybe the most frustrating side of it, because it's like, and the flag smashes are done. Wasn't that sad? Okay, moving on. <laughs> Yikes. I want to return to Lamar. There have been a couple of articles that I've read now about people's response to Lamar's death being motivation for John Walker, which a woman or a black man dying in order to be motivation for a white man is a long-standing trope that mm-hmm. has problems inherent in there. Uh, one of the articles that I read was from Princess Weeks, who she's her own YouTube creator now, but I was reading her when she was specifically a writer and still is for the Mary Sue. It's an excellent article, by the way. It's framed around episode two. She points out that Mark Grunwald, back in the 80s, was going to call Lamar Bucky. But then Dwayne McDuffie told him about the word Buck and why it's a derogatory term among African-Americans. So they created the name of Battlestar for this black sidekick. Princess Weeks has a very pragmatic approach to this. She says, nuance along the way is really as far as I allow myself to dream when it comes to this. Nuance along the way. That might be the best way to temper our expectations with Disney, especially now as they actually verge on saying something provocative. But what drove John over the edge in the comics? The equivalent to Lamar's death in the show is um, the death of John Walker's parents in the comics is the thing that makes him snap. And, ah. it, it, and it is under some very different contexts there. It's not the Flag Smasher that does it in the comics it is a group called the watchdogs who are a far right group who want to stamp out everything in american culture that they view as impure which includes birth control sex education and pornography among other things and there's a hilarious panel where when john walker is being given the rundown on who the watchdogs are and he's given that list he says wait a minute I'm against those things, too. (laughs) The tragedy there not only isn't Lamar, it's also specifically John being confronted with the horrors of these politics that he favours. One of the things that I really like about Lamar as a character is the fact that his view on the world is very shades of grey compared to the people who are around him. Um, There's moments when he's... He effectively performing his role as John's handler and conscience, which is ultimately what the 
uh, government have assigned him to be, but he's uh, he's translating from uh, some of the people who sheltered the the flag smashers when John comes in and starts trying to talk to them, and he doesn't translate their words directly. He modifies them so that he can have some control over how John responds. And I think there are there's a few other moments throughout where it becomes apparent <coughs> that knowing what he does about John's past, Lamar is. More canny about how he works with him than would maybe be expected. So he he doesn't really feel to me like a um, it's it's a small role, yes, but he doesn't really feel to me like just somebody who is stuck there to achieve one end. There's elements in how he interacts that reflect on the wider story and John specifically lying to uh, Lamar's parents as well about what happened and and him walking away from that knowing he's lied again. I love the way the actress playing the sister of Lamar isn't is watching him in a kind of I'm not sure about you way like it's Mm. it's enough that the, the mother's grief is somewhat tempered by an uncertainty and as Greg said killing the black best friend is a tropey and tired way to get a plot-centric character to be sad and angry and maybe do something bad. Even in a show with a lot of black representation, it remains problematic. Same as a Caucasian woman in place of a Tibetan man. It's lazy writing on the same level as my dead wife. I, I watched Without Remorse uh, on Amazon Prime a couple of days ago, the Michael B. Jordan Tom Clancy movie. It's really nicely put together. You know the, what the primary inciting incident is? His pregnant wife is killed. Yes. <sighs> it, it's the, Which is we, also like what I said happened to John Walker in the comics. Exactly. It, it's just, we, we are... At, it's a at, weird the, justification. We're, we're, we're at the top of the second decade of the 21st century. We are all in different time zones talking on a magical piece of glass which is recording our voices. And we still don't have better go-to justifications than what if we killed his black friend yeah okay so on to zemo and sharon carter i would i would read zemo's fitness book i would read his cookbook (laughs) i would buy his clothing line i'd I'd read his music journalism (laughs) should have worn the mask even more yeah, it was uh, it was almost a token uh, moment of him in putting that on. Uh, I think we can expect both the characters of Sharon Carter and Zemo are in progress. We will be seeing them develop later, and I feel like what irritates me about Zemo is that finding out about the flag smashers being killed and going, "Hmm, that's excellent," and then lying down in his bunk on the raft, and it's like, well. That just makes you more of a frustrating character, and I, I kind of like I, I was. There's I'm never more engaged with Zemo than the point with T'Challa and him at the end of Civil War, and even though him being Sokovian royalty changes things, it doesn't change everything. If you're a soldier or a king, dead is dead. I'm sorry about your father. He seemed a good man. With a dutiful son. Vengeance has consumed you. It's consuming them. I'm done letting it consume me. Justice will come soon enough. 
Tell that to the dead. The living are not done with you yet. Just breaks my heart. But Sharon Carter is someone that Sharon Shaw has been really invested in for years. And she's been a, a, a major character in the, in the Captain America, Ed Brubaker uh, storylines that, uh, you know, were in the 2000s following all of the um, uh, Cap in the 70s as written by, um, rewritten by Kirby and in the uh, Grunwald run in the 80s. Brubaker was the 2000s and Sharon Carter was important. And Sharon Carter was important to Steve and this seems like they were so intent on the, oh, you didn't expect her to be the power broker. Actually, yes, she is exactly who we expected totally her to be the power broker. The because we've played... She's uh, acting so evil from the moment yeah. she shows up again. <laughs> because we've played Mass Effect 2's DLC. Um, and it, it just felt like they were so intent on the mystery and the reveal that they forgot to put in... But okay, so how did that happen? Why? How does this inform on the character? And is she going to do anything other than shifty eyes? Emily Van Camp is an excellent actress. I feel like the character deserved more. Mm. And she does do shifty eyes very well. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the I think what <laughs> never liked shifty what, eyes as a, as a shortcut. Yeah, I prefer people who think they're justified. It was I mean obviously I have a very superficial investment in the character of Sharon Carter. Um, the name. And also the fact that she's um, she's a she's our direct connection to Peggy, who yeah. we lose too soon in Cap's story ultimately. Yeah. And the I think what frustrated me about the route they've taken with with moving her towards being the power broker is not so much the fact that they've done it; it's the fact that the way it was done, and the very small amount of screen time that she had to show her movement to that role means that people are now looking back to her previous performances and going, oh, so maybe she was dodgy from Jump She was Street. put in an angle, as opposed to left in the wind after the snap. Exactly, which means, unfortunately, that I have to entertain the notion that the positive elements of Sharon Carter's character that I've had for three films now... Oh, on shaky ground. I may have to let go of them, yeah. depending on what they do with her next. And it's, it's people have been know, rumbling about scroll queens, and yeah. that's, that's the kind of thing that Secret Invasion does. It goes everything you thought about this character is wrong and different. And again, this is Marvel's ability to work with what they've got. Yeah. You've got characters who were never intended to be like this, who they then retroactively go. They were like this, in Indeed. fact. So it's not so much that I have an issue with, with the route, the direction that they've taken her in. I just wish they'd given a bit more time to why. Five extra minutes. Mm, yeah. A little I bit was, fewer punch-ups. More of a, uh, uh, this is how it happened. I was hoping right until the end that that wasn't where they were going. Mm. And we were going to find out that Sharon hadn't been left on her own. That Fury had pulled her in. And she was just working for the power broker, or she was keeping tabs on the power broker, and that's what all the shifty eyes were about. And yeah. then, no, just just at the end, no, I've I've been the bad guy all along, and now I get to continue to be the bad guy because I was able to kill Batrock, and then I was able to kill Carly under the guise of protecting Sam, mm. and now 
whatever is. And this is dissatisfying because we don't know what she was protecting, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. And we don't know whether there's virtue there or there's simply villainy. And there's also the presence of another character who's so similar to the power broker, they may as well have been the power broker, and that is Val, who mm. I believe yeah. we were originally supposed to go, oh, hey, it's Julia with Louise Dreyfus from Black Widow. That we saw last May, but then COVID came in and fucked everything up. So at this point, she's basically acting as this would be a perfect power broker, and yet she's a completely different character. Uh, she, she is effectively an evil Nick Fury, which is pretty much the power broker. <laughs> yes. So I, mean, I, I loved her performance, uh, but and ultimately it's that, that whole, like, you know, what we need is not a Captain America. What we need is a wink U.S. agent. Am I right? I mean, she's like one biscuit away from Agatha. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it, it feels like uh, the, the, the power broker side plot was left underwarmed and it was all kind of tied up with that whole super soldier serum plot thing. And that means that because the flag smashers were not, you know, concluded satisfactorily, they couldn't really deliver a close on that side of things either, which suggests that maybe one extra episode could actually have cleared a hell of a lot of this up. Mm. Either way, I didn't want to end on a, uh, a, a, a miserable note or a critical note. What it did well, I really, really liked about this show. I was very yeah, engaged absolutely. and the performances were all fantastic, even if sometimes the actors involved were performing to characters that were somewhat contradictory. And honestly, I think a lot of what they did not so well seem to be connected to their shift from pacing for movies mm. to pacing for TV, which they have not yeah. quite got the hang of yet. Effectively, we have yeah. two act ones, like, two act twos, two and two act threes. And this has that problem way more than WandaVision did because WandaVision was riffing on television. So yeah. mm. it used the medium very, uh, very deliberately and very intentionally. Like, like Marvel sort of lucked out with that gang to be there. Here's what we can do with TV debut yeah. over this. Yeah. Which felt like a long, long Captain America 4. Satisfactory. Mm -hmm. and, and it felt deaf. I never felt like this is not part of that world. And there were elements of the beloved, perfect Winter Soldier and uh, Civil War, which felt like uh, we had to kind of rush past this bit just to sort of get to the next section, because ultimately they're serving a, a cinematic audience. There's, there's very few Marvel films that manage to get absolutely every little bit that needs to be said in, in one go. Yeah. But ultimately, there were definite missteps here, political and real-world parallel missteps, which say, I mean, I, I, I heard early on uh, that this was, uh, the, the Flag Smashers were a clumsy condemnation of Black Lives Matter, which is, I think, a bad faith argument. I don't think that's what they were trying to say yeah, at it all. Absolutely. It's not even, I wouldn't say it's even slightly how they're being portrayed in the show. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's also a, uh, and I heard this from one of our, our friends, Victoria, it, it feels like a reductive view of uh, anarchist politics, which is, that definitely a bears weight. Yeah. I, I think, though, that comes down again to the, we, we hear too much about their motivations and see too much about their negative actions. We don't yeah. see the positive things they do. What we're missing is Fox News. The MCU doesn't have a Fox News. Yeah. When Sam gets challenged by that white cop in our world, that conflagration goes down far more ugly. 
and mm-hmm. Sam has to get Bucky involved in a way that will stop him from being shot in the back or face. But the MCU is not our world. They they are absent certain things which, in fact, stoked uh, the uh, uh, racial tensions in the past in their past five years. And they also don't have seemingly Fox News. We got Bill O'Reilly turning up in the uh, earlier MCU films, but they don't have a slew of anti. How dare! Captain America choose this black guy as his successor. And oh, the closest we get is um, the Super Bowl show of uh, uh, John receiving the shield, which felt very authentic. It's just the sort of thing that it's would be It's an advertising campaign, out. but it's a positive yeah. one. It's not a smear yeah. campaign. There was something very kind of Mountain Dew advert about all of that promotion. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, even there, that's a black university the 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 band that that's playing is i believe it's it's an hbcu mm-hmm. uh and they're playing for a white guy yeah it is a perfect introduction for sam that's been given to john nice yeah. there are some great great moments in this show uh austin carry on sorry i, I had to okay uh, it actually sort of ties into that it's like when they did that um when they did John Walker's like real introduction into the show as like a news segment in one episode and in another episode had that ad for the GRC at the start of one of the episodes. I thought that was going to be more of a motif and then it really wasn't. Mm. That bit in particular felt like a Paul Verhoeven segment where you're being told one warm, comforting thing. It then cuts to a bone-chilling shot of cops entering poor people's homes. Contradictory signals from which you have to pass the reality of civilization from. Which ties into your old thing with there's a lack of a Fox News stand-in for this story. Yeah. One of the other reasons why I wish I lived in the MCU and not our world. (laughs) I would honestly far rather deal with aliens coming out of the sky and the snap and the blip than Fox News. And various other things we've had to live with in the Absolutely. past few years. Okay, do you want aliens, androids, and wizards, mm-hmm. or Murdoch, Putin, and Trump? Oh, gonna have to no, go with uh, answer A there, <laughs> Vanna. School of Movies is kept alive by Patreon, and our top tier sponsors get a name check every episode. So a massive thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Sabard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman. Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. And we are currently almost at the end of our MCU revisit on Patreon. Everybody at the $5 level gets access to weekly bonus episodes, and we've been going back for little half-hour shows to re-explore these movies after the close of Phase 3. Feels extra special after that Phase 4 reveal. This week also sees the release of the first episode of my interracial LGBTQIA plus interdimensional sci-fi romance, Stone Spring Maidens. Go find the New Century Multiverse wherever you get podcasts. 
and hit that subscribe button. Okay, so to our esteemed guests before we go, where can folks find your best work that you are most proud of? We will start with Alastair. Uh, you can find the four podcasts they co-own, which do short genre fiction on a weekly rotation, which are Escape Pod, which does science fiction, Pseudopod that does horror, Podcastle that does fantasy, and Cast of Wonders that does YA, uh, in any good podcatcher. There's just over a thousand episodes, there's a huge back catalogue, all kinds of really good stuff, and both Escape Pod and Podcastle are Hugo nominated this year. And pod, um, you can find me every week at 5 p.m. On, uh, in your inbox if you sign up to the Full Lid, which is my pop culture newsletter, which is also Hugo nominated this year. Yay! Um, I can vouch for that, by the way. I am a signatory. I get it every week. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in various other places, but those are the two primaries right now. Okay. Greg. Well, I can't stand up to that at all because Hugo. Okay, clearly I need to follow more of what Alistair is doing here because I'm on his new le- newsletter, but I have not um, pursued nearly enough of his stuff. Um, me and my friend Toby Jungius do the Through the Window podcast, which is very specifically a fan podcast for the estimable works of Alex Shaw in regards to the New Century multiverse stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are in the middle of season four, which includes the very first book he wrote, The Cartographer's Handbook, and we will be proceeding from there to his fourth book, Arlington. And so if you're interested in hearing more about race politics and being a soldier and some of the things that go hand in hand with that there's going to be plenty of content for you a lot of it heavy and but still necessary conversations thank you greg and austin i do most of my main writing on tumblr my writing tumblr is wits-writing.tumblr.com i'm recently put up a piece that I'm very proud of, digging into the parallels between the Lego Batman movie and the fan parody stage musical, Holy Musical Batman. And I think I got some really good stuff out of that. And You did, it's cool. <laughs> thank you, Sharon. Also, I'm one of the frequent contributors to Two Cents over at Synapse.co. So... If you look through enough of those articles, you'll see me more than once throwing in my two cents. Trying to get back into the swing now that writing reviews outside of two cents now that movies are actually coming back. Just that relief, just hearing those words. In conclusion, I'm going to invoke MLK's treatise on the three evils plaguing the world of 1967, the year before he was assassinated for speaking out, inspiring and uplifting the black community. Those were racism, poverty, and war. 54 years later, little has changed. Falcon, as a show, dabbles in aspects of each of these, and I'm only going to read two brief sections, but I urge you listeners to read on or listen to this entire speech on your own time. Now, there is nothing new about poverty. It's been with us for years and centuries. What is new at this point, though, is that we now have the resources, we now have the skills, we now have the techniques to get rid of poverty. And the question is whether our nation has the will. 
For those who are telling me to keep my mouth shut, I can't do that. I am against segregation at lunch counters. I am not going to segregate my moral concerns. And we must know on some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there's times when you must take a stand that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but you must do it because it is right. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. <laughs>